Welcome to Addressing Alaskans, where we feature community conversations around South Central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel throughout our community and listen to local groups discuss what matters to them. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Ammon Swenson. Today's program comes from the recent Betty Davis African American Summit. This moderated discussion focuses on education and how it relates to the theme of the summit, marching till equity, equality, and justice is one. Speakers include educators and community and public leaders. This event took place on February 10th at Betty Davis East High School and was organized by the Alaska Black Caucus. Moderator Dr. Patricia Wilson-Cone speaks next. Okay, good morning to everybody. Still, we're still in the neighborhood of morning here in Anchorage, Alaska. Glad to have everybody here with us at this part of the Alaska Black Caucus, Betty Davis African American Summit. March until equity, equality, and justice is one, and this is the Forum for Education. I've been doing a lot of reading uh, this African American History Month from the writings of Dr. Andriette Earle, who is the founder of Heart and Soul Center Light in Oakland, California, and she says that we must continue to embrace education, embrace wholeness, knowing that we're living in spiritual congruence as well as spiritual incongruence. Some opening words are, we all know that our ancestors from the African community survived not only the Middle Passage, but some crossed the Atlantic Ocean, chained to other humans. Many were sick, stripped of hulls of diseases, stripped of our culture, personal dignity, stripped of the opportunity of equality, of justice, and of education. We know that only the strong in mind have survived, and today we come here as educated as we are and as educated as we are to become, knowing that there's still room for many who have refused to allow us the opportunities to receive more equity in education. Once we were emancipated, many survived the horrors of slavery, and again, the intentional poverty and the horrors of just working and sharecropping experiences, penal systems, free and not free at the same time, calculated by various immunities and bodies hanging from trees, and wondering still about the strange fruit. It was after the Civil War that many of our ancestors fought in wars, and many today have fought in wars, boycotted, sat and rode in buses and marched in hope of securing equal rights and securing equity and securing education. We know that our ancestors, it is because of them that we can stand in this space of the Betty Davis African-American school system and the Betty Davis African-American summit of this school. So we come with a panel today and I'm gonna let them introduce themselves to you. I'm your moderator, Dr. Patricia Wilson-Cohn, pastor of First American Baptist Church. And each panel member, would you please introduce yourself by name and tell us a little bit about yourselves before we begin posing the questions to you. Go ahead, Mr. Kevin McGee. Good morning. My name is Kevin McGee. 
I'm a resident of Anchorage, Alaska for 52 years. I got here by way of the Army from Vietnam to here. Um, I didn't know what in the world I did wrong to get orders for Alaska. But I've grown to love the state. Uh, I have three children that have graduated from the Anchorage Public School System. My oldest daughter graduated from West High, earned an academic scholarship to Johns Hopkins, graduated from Johns Hopkins, and now works for Johns Hopkins. My middle daughter graduated from here, Betty Davis East High School. She went into the Air Force this past September. She was promoted to the highest enlisted rank in the Air Force, Chief Master Sergeant, E-9. My youngest, my son, he graduated from Service High School. He lives in an assistant living home, and he would not have made it through the Anchorage Public School System if it had not been for the educators that taught special needs children. So our family's been gifted by the association of being associated with the Anchorage School District, the faculty, and the administration. We as parents have a lot to do. We must insist that our children get the best available education necessary. Thank you. I have much less to say. <laughs> I'm LaShonda McGowan. I'm a clinical social worker, um, born here in Anchorage, raised in the Valley, Wasilla, graduated from Wasilla High School. I've been in Alaska most of my life. Um, and then attended, I graduated from University of Alaska Anchorage, then I went to Atlanta and began to travel. I've been working as a, a travel clinical social worker and I have been a special educator. I was a teacher for seven years, then worked as a school social worker and now I am a therapist. Um, I work with children and families and also in the community, like community mental health. So. Thank you for your help. My name is Cecily Williams and I uh, let's see, I most know me by being the past principal of Clark Middle School, but prior to that, uh, my husband was military, and we, uh, our first station was in Fairbanks, loved Fairbanks. Uh, I was a kindergarten teacher there, I was a sixth grade language arts teacher there, and also a counselor, and then we moved up here to, uh, to Anchorage, where I was counselor at North Star Elementary School, then I transferred to a counselor at Windler Middle School. Then I was assistant principal at Hanshu Middle School, and then the principal at Clark Middle School for the rest of my term. Um, I love this district. I love education. I love knowing and seeing students learn and uh, giving them hope as to what tomorrow can be, because it doesn't have to be nothing. That's not an option. And so I uh, refer to my students always as scholars, academic scholars, every day. And so even when I see them throughout the community, and it makes me so proud, they're everywhere. They're at the doctor's office, they're at the grocery store, they're owning their own business, they, you know, they own their own barbershops. They are literally 
everywhere thriving and doing great things in the community. So I uh, appreciate the opportunity to participate in this panel today. Thank you. My name is Luki Gail Tobin. I have the privilege of representing Downtown Anchorage, Fairview, South Edition, Jay Bear, and parts of Northeast Muldoon, East Ridge, and North Star in the Alaska State Senate. I also have the distinction of being the Senate Education Chair, where for the first time since 2012, we passed the most significant increase to the base student allocation with a unanimous vote out of my committee and a majority of the votes out of the Senate. It now sits in the House where we are fighting every day to get that bill across the finish line because we know our educators, our families, and our communities need us to stand up for education. My story is a little bit different. I was born in Nome. My parents met in New York before they were able to be married legally. And they knew they didn't want to raise a mixed-race child where they experienced significant struggles. So they went as far as they possibly could go, which is Nome, Alaska. And that's where they stopped, and that's where I was born and raised. I also went to elementary school in Juneau. I've had the privilege of going to school in Kodiak, and I obviously came to Anchorage to go to university and stayed and worked on a PhD program now at the University of Alaska Fairbanks in Indigenous Studies with a focus on culturally responsive education. I love education policy. I'm a huge nerd, and I will try very diligently to stay out of the weeds and not talk so specifically about all of the research that I think is really when we talk about how we can improve education outcomes. I'm very excited to be here. I think this panel showcases that we have excellent things happening in our public school systems and that this mantra of our schools are failing needs to be stopped with us here in the room because our schools are not failing. Our kids are doing incredible things and our teachers are performing as the highest caliber and we need to continue to beat that drum that we need to invest in excellence because excellence is happening. Thank you so much. Let's give our panel a hand. This is the Education Forum panel today. And the first question goes to Ms. LaShondra McGowan. How can we reflect on education today in relationship to the theme, Marching Till Equity, Equality, and Justice is Born? How can we reflect on education today in relationship to our theme today? Um, so, I just believe that all of us, so there's us who are in positions who've worked, you know, we work in education, we work with children and families, but it can't just be professionals in the field who are trying to make a difference and making things better in education. But it also has to be the public. It has to be um, people who are not just people of color, who are working to make things just for those who are disproportionately marginalized. You know? um, it's Black History Month, so of course we talk about Black people, um, but we're also here in Alaska, we talk about Alaska Native populations, but um, all the statistics show that um, race and socioeconomic status, that it has a major impact on education. And because we do know these things, then we know, we know there should be more funding um, appropriated to black people and people of color. Um, there should be initiatives to put people in education who look like what the community looks like. Um, but it can't just be us saying that. We need white people to say that. People who are abolitionists, people in power who 
other white people will listen to, to bring these things to pass. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, Ms. Cecily Williams, same question. How can we reflect on education today in relationship to the theme, March Until Equity, Equality, and Justice is Won? So in reflecting on education today, uh, again, we would be remiss if we did not look back to see what some of those struggles were when schools were segregated. And then uh, it took those brave few who stepped into schools, were called names, were spat on, you know, et cetera, and so on, who went through the worst in order that we may be here today. And so as we look and we're reflective, and I do appreciate your comments of saying um, that we're, we're, everything is not a disaster within the school district that's here. Kids are learning. But then I would ask, where is our role? You know, as we get older, my children are grown, they have children themselves. You know, what is our role to step in and create opportunities? Because I remember that very vividly. You know, before we went out, we were always told, this is what the expectation is. We had opportunities in church to stand and say Easter speeches. You know, we had opportunities to do oratoricals, you know, because somebody put it together for us to create opportunities. And did we want to? No. But did we have to? Yes, we did. And, and, and we're grateful for it today because we can stand, we can speak, we can uh, against some of the best that are here. Um, but I look forward to creating those opportunities. I had a conversation with my daughter, and she was saying, I remember all these things we did at church. I said, but you must know that you're that person now that needs to step in and be that person that is the one for the children that are of that church and bring them back in because those people are much older now and you know they're moving on with their lives. But but we are we're missing our steps in seeing that it, it's our time. It's our time to step and create those opportunities again to prepare our students so that when they go into school that they step solidly with great confidence. Oh, I know I can run for office. I know I can do this speech. I know I can be the leader of this. I can go to my principal and volunteer to be a, 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 or whatever it may be. But I would just encourage all of us to empower and, and look at creating opportunities that, um, that strengthen their leadership ability and their confidence so that when they step into the school, they, they are on 1,000. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on Alaska Public Media. Today's program comes from the recent Betty Davis African American Summit. This moderated discussion focuses on education and how it relates to the theme of the summit, marching till equity, equality, and justice is won.
Okay, uh, same question to our Alaska State Senator, Lukey. Uh, how can we reflect on education today in relationship to our theme, March until equity, equality, and justice is one? Thank you, and I'm gonna try again not to get so into the weeds, but I think it's important that we do reflect on history, and I'm gonna use our state's history. So when we founded this great state and our constitution was written, we took something really important and enshrined it in Article 7, which is every right, excuse me, which is every student has a right to a public education. And we were clear that that needs to be equitably funded. So you see for the very first foundation formula, the way the state funds education, equitability put into how we divide the funds. Now this has been adjudicated in our state many times over. The Kasaili lawsuit, Molly Hooch, which is one that says every student should have access to a public school facility. And that's where you start to see more schools, where you see more school districts. We also have a lawsuit called the Moore lawsuit. And Moore says that especially the students who are struggling, they are entitled to targeted support. They are entitled to pre-K, which we know helps create equal opportunity for every child. They are entitled to being, to being taught to read because we know reading leads to voting. When folks are able to read, they can participate in their civic society. We know that how critical it is to be taught those essentials. But the Moore lawsuit also said that students have a right to be exposed to electives and to other ways of learning around the world. And that's the piece that I think we've really lost in this dialogue. So much of what's happening in Juneau is about only funding what people call the three R's. Clearly, they need to go back to school because reading, writing, and arithmetic are not three R's. But they also forget that our Constitution and our legal precedent says that every student should have a right to go to music and drama. They should have an opportunity to be exposed to different languages and different eclectic ways of knowing our indigenous communities, world languages, all of those pieces. And in Juneau, everyone keeps saying, well, we need to focus on the basics. But if you don't have those opportunities that kids come to school for, for basketball and for wrestling and for drama class and for chess club, then you're not gonna get the butts in the chairs. And that to me seems to be what really is happening. We've seen this happen before. We know what happened after emancipation where white supremacists sought to defund public schools because they didn't want to give black folks the ability to read. And we're seeing it happen now where all the conversation is around charter schools and around correspondence programmings, opportunities that aren't necessarily open to every child. And it's frustrating and I get very angry about it. And I know that you do too. And so we need to have more folks standing up and saying, we want every child to have equal access to a high quality education. And we're willing to put skin in the game to make that happen. We're willing to increase the funding at the sacrifice of maybe a super large PFD because this actually is gonna create better opportunities for our young people to succeed. That to me is what this whole march is about, is being able to make the sacrifices for our kids and to say that they're more important than us having a brand new snow machine. You know, just stirring up trouble when it comes to equity, equality, and education is really not enough. 
just as John Lewis marched and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. marched and Fannie Lou Hamer marched and people around the world. And it was Fannie Lou Hamer who was known for the last, the famous words of I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. But she also said, when I liberate myself, I liberate others. If you don't speak out, nobody is going to speak out for you when it comes to education, equity, and equality. One way to speak out, Pamela, is to address the question, how does racial inequality affect education today? Racial inequality. Who would like to be the first to respond to that question? How does racial inequality affect education today? As a father of three, two girls and one boy, if I had not been supportive of my children and allowed for their racial inequality to exist that, had a, that would have an impact on my family, that would be my fault. It's the reason why I believed that whenever any one of my children needed me, I was there for them. Anything that came up within the school district that I saw as a problem, I would stand up and speak out and support, once again, my children. My two daughters went through the special uh, gifted program and they were able to do that because they wanted to and I supported, well, my wife and I, because she, she led, led the way. Uh, we supported our children and we would not let anything stand in their way that would help them improve their lives. Thank you. Thank you, sir. I'm just gonna hold on to it because that's gonna be easier. So I think about this a lot with my research. I am focusing on culturally responsive education and it is the story of Alaska. We have a colonialist education that has been superimposed on our indigenous populations. And when you think about the black experience or you think about the Latinx experience, these are also indigenous populations that have become diaspora because they were stolen from their land and brought here and ripped of their heritage and their languages. So we have a synergy, a connection to how indigenous folks here in Alaska have experienced education as well as how myself, my family has experienced education. It is interesting to me because we now can name it, we can call it a colonialist system. We can name it as inequity, but we haven't yet done what needs to happen, which is address how we decolonize those structures and indigenize them so that we include those unique ways of knowing the pedagogy that is contained in those unique ways of knowing in our classrooms. And I think that really comes down to the diversity of our educators. When you have folks with the experience in the room helping to build the curricula, leading the class, helping to educate the administrators, you have someone who with their experiential knowledge and with their lived experience can really help identify the root causes and issues that continue to create that circular oppression. I am very concerned when I look at our classrooms across the state 
at how few teachers of color are standing up in those rooms. I myself was never taught by a black person. I've gone through pre-K all the way through a PhD program and I've not had one black teacher. Imagine all of our students across the state never having a teacher that looks like them in the room. And we know when you have more teachers of color, you have less OCS calls because those teachers understand that it might not be that, they're, that that child is having problems at home, it's that that child has an inability to have a bed at night because their family is housing insecure, or that child just needs some food because there is an inability for them to keep food in the cupboard because the SNAP program continues to be underfunded and poorly regulated. When you have teachers of color, you have folks who are able to explain why the kid, kid still has a hat on their head because their hair hasn't been combed, because the foster family doesn't know how to do their hair. It's so important to have more educators of color, and that means we need to start looking at the pathways. The system we have now is a barrier to getting more folks of color into the system because a four-year degree is too expensive. It's difficult to obtain if you don't have the SAT score because you weren't able to pay for the tutors, you weren't able to pay for all the support systems to get you into those advanced degrees, and you have to work for peanuts. Our teacher salaries today are less than they were when I was in high school, and even less than they were when I was in elementary school. If you're unable to make a living wage, why would you go into that work? We really need to look at the system as a whole, but most importantly to me, I think piece that would have the most effect is if we created pathways that would encourage and increase the educator diversity so that kids know that they can be in those positions in the future. Thank you. So when I, I think of that question, the first thing that comes to mind is good trouble. Um, you know, it, it just gives me that chill to say, um, to challenge ourselves to say, uh, are we ready for that? And that doesn't mean that we're standing up for something that is obnoxious. We're standing up for kids these days and where they are. I remember when I first, uh, when we first came to Fairbanks, um, Alaska was the highest paid for teachers. They were the highest paid across the United States. And it, it was hard to get in. And I kept trying, I, I finally, I did. I got, I was able to get in. But uh, I just remember that those were good moments that there was a sense of pride. And so I will challenge each and every one of us with good trouble is to change the narrative. Uh, change the narrative for education instead of saying negative or bad things about it or to those educators, encourage them you know, to stay in. What can we do to help and support? And again, I just reflect on, um, again, when I was in all of my schools, but I was, my, my most, my lengthiest of years was at Clark Middle School. Uh, my sorority came and helped. Uh, they fed my teachers breakfast in the morning and said how much they appreciate them. Uh, they stood in the hallways and they uh, said good things and positive things to my kids. They came on Saturdays to do academies with me. Um, and I just appreciate that so much, you know, from the university, they partnered with me, you know, and so that's just innovative practices that are there, again, creating opportunities for students, and then even looking at a teacher academy that we could work on, how do we help 
uh, students who have that knack for uh, connecting with children and love children, you know, to move in that profession and, and help and help keep that positive. We, if, if you just take a moment to reflect, we are excellent at the negativity sometimes. And we need to watch ourselves at how we present that to others and stand in pride, you know, with what we have. The number of years that I spent in education, I loved every moment of it. My eyes opened up at four o'clock in the morning every day without a, without a clock, you know. I thought throughout the night thinking and dreaming of great new ideas that I can do. I always asked my boss, you know, and got things approved, but I always asked for permissions on how can I make this school better for students and their families as well, because it takes all of the unity and the part that's there. So um, students, students right now can go to school. That's an equitable part that's there. When we look at things a little further, you look at your advanced math classes, you look at your advanced science classes, are they there? And are they capable of being there? Are they tested for gifted? Gifted with some of the African-American students doesn't look like it does with majority students, you know? But they're never given an opportunity sometimes because behavior might get in the way for a moment. You know, and we take that, sometimes teachers take that moment because somebody is not there to be an advocate for them. So I, I would just encourage all of us to step in the lives of, and help other families and their children because we've been through that journey before. Help them and stand and be advocates on behalf of them and their children if needed, if needed. I always say I'm never, uh, my, 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 at my school, I'm never their parents but I definitely am one to join in the circle uh, to help them to be successful in anything that I can do to be an advocate for them, to help them stand for their children. I'm always there. Thank you. I'm just, I, that's why I like to go last. I can listen to what everybody says and I feel like I can speak to just so many of them. So as a former special education teacher, I can emphasize how important it is to have the community come in and undergird the teachers. If you're there, you're working long days, you're working with students with behaviors, and then sometimes you have the parents who have behaviors that are more intense than the students. Um, you know, you're the teacher, you're the parent, you're the counselor, you're everything. And so there's so much work that goes into being a teacher, and you love the kids, you know, you love what you do, but you need support. And so Having that community support is very important. And of course, money. You don't want to be teaching and you got to get a second job because, you know, you love teaching, you love what you do, you love the kids, but you're broke. So now you got to go do something else on the side. And you can't be the best as a teacher when you're exhausted, you know? So there's that. Um, you talked about representation, and that's something I always talk about. So as a black woman educator, like the kids loved seeing me. You know, and I understood why, because I was I was raised in Wasilla and my family was one of the first black families out there in the 70s. Um, and I went through so much racism. I was called the N word day in and day out from first grade. Well, I, I was going to say through, but it didn't happen because in first grade uh, I started beating kids down. <laughs> and so um, racism is traumatic. You know, it's an experience that you go through and it wounds you and it impacts the rest. It can impact the rest of your life if it's not worked through. 
So for me, I, you know, I'm this sweet, nice black girl. But when you have a teacher who's racist, you know, when you have everybody in the school is white, everybody who's in power is white, and then the kids are using the N-word, um, you know, you flipping tables, you're doing whatever you have to do for attention. Um, but And then you have to defend yourself. So it just kind of changes who you are as a person, having to go through those experiences. Um, and it is very important to have parents, like you were saying, parents who come in and go to bat for you. You know, so I had my parents come in. They talked to the teachers, to the families, to the school boards. They made changes throughout the valley because they were not having it. You know, what they were seeing displayed by me in the classroom tearing it up was because of racism. It wasn't because I was a bad kid, you know. So all of those things are important. Um, what else did I want to say? Oh, and I never had a, I think I had a black substitute. I had a black substitute teacher one time. And I was thinking, am I in heaven? It was like the best experience ever. Um, and I don't know if it was uh, middle school or high school. Um, but I remember in college, when I was going here at UAA, there was Dr. Freddie Jackson. And I took an African-American uh, history course. And I learned so much. It was like the veil had been lifted. And um, I just didn't learn. I didn't have access to all that information in school. Um, and I just was so empowered. And so having representation is major. Having support for those who are trying to change the lives of our children is very important. Um, and then making sure that we take a stand against racism, not just in word, but in deed. Going to meetings, doing whatever you have to do to make sure people understand that that is not okay and it cannot continue to happen. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on Alaska Public Media. Today's program comes from the recent Betty Davis African American Summit. This moderated discussion focuses on education and how it relates to the theme of the summit, marching till equity, equality, and justice is won. John uh, Lewis, and it was in 1963 that he actually joined Dr. Martin Luther King on the March on Washington with Dr. Martin Luther King's speech, and John Lewis made a speech as well, and it was sort of termed a call to action. And his uh, piece of education was, be patient and wait, for we too want to be educated. We have long said that we cannot be patient, we do not want our freedom or education gradually, 
but we do want it and we want it now. He's also known as the one who gave us the term good trouble and it really means necessary trouble. Another question to our panelists and we'll start on the far left with our uh, senator down there. African-American students are more likely to be suspended or expelled and less likely to be placed in gifted programs and subject to lower expectations from their teachers or principals or school administrators. Could you respond to that, please? That's a hard one to respond to because it's true. And it is one where we know and it is clear that racism is alive and well, that historic and disenfranchised peoples continue to bear the brunt of white privilege and white fragility. And we have forgotten to call it out for what it is. Right now, I am in a dialogue with my colleagues in Juneau about how to fund education, what we need to do to help put some blood back into the system, that the slow trickle is now a gushing wound on our schools. There is teachers who are crowdsourcing a vacuum cleaner because they don't have janitorial staff. There are educators who are begging the community to bring snacks into their classrooms because they have hungry kiddos and the state is refusing to take federal dollars for summer food support programs. And I have to sit across the table from folks who are arguing that we should have a 33% increase in our correspondence programs when they only want to give a 5% increase to the base student allocation for all of our public schools. We know that correspondence programs are a backdoor to vouchers. We know that vouchers came because the schools in Virginia did not want to integrate and they defunded their public schools to the point where the black students had no place to go. And here we are having that same battle almost 70 years later in the state of Alaska. I have a quote on my desk in the Senate from Martin Luther King Jr. that says, education is not a given. It is a hard fought for right. And we know that that right is being taken away from us and that it never has truly been given to us. We have students who have such potential and such capacity to do great things, and yet their educators, instead of sitting down with them when they do have disruptions, when they do have troubles, send them out of the classroom. And it's not because I think those educators are bad people or because they, they don't have the capacity for grace and for forgiveness. It's because they too are stressed. And what no one wants to talk about is the mental health toll that is happening across this nation for so many different facets and reasons. And here we are watching the consequence be borne by one community more significantly than any other. It is a difficult road that we go down, but I do think that the answer is volunteering in our schools. I think the answer is standing up for our kids and holding folks accountable. I'm gonna give you the, the data wonky thing now. It's very confusing, but it's the data that you need. If you go to the State Department of Education and Early Development's website, you can look at your school's report card. You can track down 
and pull out the data, and it will tell you what the absentee rates are, it will tell you what the graduation rates are, it will tell you what the expulsion rates are, it will tell you what the test scores are of all the different subpopulations expressed in our schools. You can find this information and go to your school board members and ask them, why is it that we have more attendance by kids experiencing homelessness than our black students? Why is it that our kids who are experiencing homelessness are given the resources to show up in our schools, but our black students are not given those same resources? Why is it that our graduation rates for our Alaska Native students are lower than the graduation rates for our homeless students? What is being missed here? What are the things that aren't closing the gap? It is our responsibility to hold our systems of power in check, and that is what the necessary trouble is. These are difficult conversations, they are uncomfortable conversations, but they are the conversations that need to be had. I would just like to sh uh, share uh, thoughts from um, a student's perspective, uh, which has been many, many times, but often when um, students are sent down to the office, and that is very true, they are particularly kids of color, uh, but when time is taken to sit down and have a conversation with them and to find out what really was the problem, nine times out of 10, it wasn't them that started the problem in the first place. It's usually something that went on, something that transpired, something that was a trigger for them, uh, a comment that was made to them, sometimes by the teacher, sometimes other students in the class that is highly offensive and they're not going to sit and endure any longer. But just by having the conversation to be able to say, you know, oh, well, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do about this? Uh, I remember many times uh, sitting in my office and speaking to parents and a student when a student has been wrong and apologizing to that parent when a teacher wouldn't, but also apologizing to that student because that's what helps heal the wounds that's there. And if we want to live by example, we have to show it by example because everybody who comes down is not the one who's gotten the wrong or to mediate it between the teacher and the student to be able to say, I'll be there. You need to let her know what happened that was offensive so that it doesn't happen again. And then the teacher is able to dialogue back and then to be able to end with a claim of who you are. I just wanna let you know that I'm a scholar here at this school. I want to go to, I'm going to go to college. I am going to do this. I said, you have to claim yourself at the end of any speech that you give so that people know who you are and what you stand for but not just to walk away with that. But many times that was the misunderstanding. I'm gonna give, real quick, I'm gonna give one example. When I was at North Star Elementary School, we had an African-American student. She was a bigger young lady. They were in the cafeteria. That's when I was a counselor then. So I was an aide to everybody then. And so one of, the, one of the trash cans during lunch was knocked over. A teacher walked through and she was sure that she was the one. And she just immediately went, at, went in after her, took her to the office, wanted her out, wanted her gone. I took the time to find out what was going on and talk to the students around. It was not her. She was not the one. She was helping to pick the trash up, but she didn't knock it over. The student who did it did not say anything, but the other students came to her uh, came and told me what actually happened. 
when I went and spoke to the teacher and I told her this would be a great example for the staff for you to right your wrong with the student. It never happened. And that would have been the healing part for that student. But that student could have easily been sent home for a week or two, and it didn't happen. She was not the one. But she kept her advocacy. She said, ma'am, I'm, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I did not do that. And so that's before we had the cameras that were there. But those, those are examples that hover with me. And I'm glad I was there to be that advocate to see. But wish I wish so much that she would have taken that opportunity to stand for something better and to right her wrong. Uh, but anyway, it turned out well, but it, it's often misunderstood with our students and there's no one there to be an advocate for them. Um, and, so, and that's why I always go back to trauma. And so in that situation, that was a trigger you know, the trash can was knocked over the teacher without considering anything, just said, this is you. And so I'm sure that black girl had already had experiences like this before because of the racial system and society we live in. So whether it was at the store, whether, you know, whatever environment she could have been in, I'm sure she was exposed to uh, times where people were against her and it could have been just because of her color. So that situation triggered it. That's another, it's a traumatic response, right? Um, so there's that. You have to be able to take care of the base needs of kids. So that's one of the reasons why I left teaching to be a school social worker, because you can't teach a kid if their basic needs are not taken care of. So if they're emotionally all jacked up, which a lot of kids are, that has to be taken care of. If they're hungry, that has to be taken care of. You can't teach somebody when they're hungry. If they don't have housing, they need a safe place to live. If they don't have clothes, if they're not clean, all of these things is part of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You've got to take care of this before you try to teach them. You also have to have relationship with kids. If the kid thinks you don't like them, they're not going to learn from you, even if they have all their needs met. Um, and then that goes back to representation. If you don't have people of color who are in leadership, to care and to build relationship with those black kids or native kids or kids of color, then you're already like at a, it's at a disadvantage, you know? Um, the, most of the teachers are white teachers and there's implicit bias, unfortunately. You know, there's bias regardless of whether they say it is or not, but that's how students experience it. Um, and then also families experience it that way as well. And so you gotta have people in the classrooms, people who are the principals, people who are in leadership in education, who represent the majority of what the students look like. So. Would you care to respond to that, Mr. McGee, before we move to our last question? And we've got about eight minutes left. Too much apathy in our community. You must be involved. I looked out over the room I see approximately 26 people of color. In my opinion, that's shameful. Like the last panel said, this room should be full. We have to show more interest and stop expecting everyone else to do for us. We need to get up off our butts and do for ourselves and help our children, period. Thank you so much.
our final question to our final question to our panelists today is why is more school funding needed today to enhance educational initiatives? I'm sure all of you have you want to stop yes. Mr. McGee and yes. just go all down the line. I recently read an article, and I'm going to quote this article, and it's relevant to everything we've been discussing. Data from the State Department of Education website for the 2022-23 school year shows marked differences in ethnicity. For example, white students represent 47.2% of the student population in public schools and 64.7% in charter schools. The proposed funding increase for homeschooling and charter schools is currently 40 million. Enrollment in charter schools was 7,065 students last year, or 5.35% of the state student population. On a per student basis, that is a $5,661 increase per student in the charter school system, while the proposed increase in the base student allocation for all other students is $300 each. It is important to note that all students get the BSA. So what the House Majority Caucus and Governor are is calling for a double, doubling funding for charter school students while providing only $300 for everyone else. Imagine what could be done if all students got the same support they want to provide for charter schools. What works is a lower student-teacher ratios, parental involvement, support of gifted programs, and attraction and retention of excellent teachers and staff. The governor and House majority would agree to fund public schools at the same level as proposed for charter schools. All school districts would have budget surpluses. Instead, why not increase the BSA by just 25% of what they want to offer students in charter schools? That would mean $1,415 increase to the BSA. That would allow the districts to increase base pay for teachers and staff, offer hiring incentives, safe and perhaps expand the gifted programs, and address many other pressing needs of the state's public school system. In the long run, this will improve student outcomes and get Alaska back up in the national standing where we belong. All it takes is a political backbone to do it. A quote that I live by, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. So it is well known that the schools that have the least amount of money are the schools where there's more people of color. Um, and of course, the well-funded schools are the schools where the white people are. Um, and it also has to do with where you lived, you know, where you live. There's the boundaries, school attendance boundaries and residential and all of that. Um, if the federal government would get more involved and put their money behind some things, I think that that would make a major difference. Um, and it's just needed. Like, it, nothing will ever change until the people in power who make the decisions. Well, I can't just say look like. Either they look like those who they want to help or 
they have a heart to want to help those who need the help most. You know? Something that I'd like for you each in the audience to think about is out of all the professions in the world, and there's some great ones, there are attorneys, there are lawyers, there are, you know, uh, it's the gamut, who make the most, you know, money in the world, and they are thriving and, and doing good. How are these students supposed to achieve that goal? Who's going to be your physician as we get older? if we don't give them a great education to come up to excel in? Who's gonna work on the pipeline? Who's gonna work in the grocery stores? Who, who's going to do this if they do, if, they, if we're not able to educate our children well? This is going to make our nation either great or crumble. This is the foundation of almost any type of position that you can name to me right now. This is the foundation, whether they go to a trade school or not, it's a foundation. They still must have solid math. They still must have solid science. They still must be able to write. They still must be able to read. As we move into technology, they still must be able to touch that entity as well and have a level of competency if we want our nation to be well. And I used to ask the question, who's gonna push your wheelchair for you? You know, when you get to that point where you're going to look around and say, who is there to stand in these positions that we are holding or that we have held if we are not embracing education to lift them up? Yes, it takes the community. Yes, it takes outside entities, but they must be able to have a foundation of those basic facts or even the higher level facts in order to stand and compete in this world. And so again, we must take that stand to be able to say, this is an important profession. Yes, we do need to raise that BSA. And yes, we do need to speak positiveness on those educators that are in the field that are doing the work and the ones that are the future to come. So one of the quotes I've been thinking about is it is easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. I believe in raising the BSA because I trust my parents, I trust our teachers, I trust my administrators and superintendents when they say that the ship is no longer simply sinking, it is now so underwater, we may not be able to get it back up to float again. I have had students in my committee room tell me that they are desperate to take advanced classes, to go off to become the doctors and the lawyers, and they don't see any opportunity for them to do those great things because we don't care about them. Our students don't think we care about them. Raising the BSA is not simply about putting money into a system and hoping that it does something great. I know it will do something great because I went to school in our public school system. We have an opportunity to not just stop the bleed that is happening in our public schools, but to infuse the system with so much resource that there can be innovation, that there can be smaller class sizes, that we will retain our educators and they will gain the experience 
so that they too will become high quality and achieve better outcomes. The message needs to be not let's adequately fund education. I don't want to be adequate. I don't think I've ever had a C in my life. I want us to excel, and I think every student in this state has the potential to excel. We need to significantly increase the BSA, we need to inflation-proof it, and we need to make sure that every educator only has one job, and that is to be in the classroom. So audience today, you have heard from the Education Forum, you've heard from Kevin McGee, president of NAACP, LaShonda McGowan, a clinical social worker here in the state of Alaska, Cecily Williams, a former principal of Clark Middle School, and our own Lakee Gail Tobin, Alaska State Senator. Give them a hand. <laughs> Dr. Howard Thurman said it well. If I knew you and you knew me by the inner light divine, the meaning of your life and mine, I'm sure we would differ less when it comes to education, and we would collapse our hands in friendliness and move forward with education, with equity, and with justice for all. Enjoy. Let's give them another hand. Thanks for joining us today for Addressing Alaskans. Today's program came from the recent Betty Davis African American Summit organized by the Alaska Black Caucus. Find us on the web at alaskapublic.org, the Alaska Public Media app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ammon Swenson. Thanks for listening. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.